2: If it's Friday, President Biden urges an end to a historic auto workers' strike as nearly 150,000 union members prepare to hit the picket line in the UAW's first-ever simultaneous strike on all of Detroit's big three car makers. Plus, a Meet the Press exclusive with former President Trump will take you inside Kristen Welker's one-on-one with the Republican presidential frontrunner for her first show as the new moderator of Meet the Press this Sunday, with no topics off limits from his actions on January 6th, his 91 criminal counts, and his current view of Vladimir Putin, and the piling up of political problems facing the White House that is voters questioning whether President Biden has what it takes amid the partisan warfare of a looming impeachment inquiry and new legal issues facing his son, Hunter Biden. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Gabe Gutierrez here in Washington, where we begin with the growing number of challenges facing both the Biden White House and his reelection campaign, starting with a historic strike in a key sector of the U.S. economy. As the clock struck midnight, thousands of auto workers officially walked out at three car manufacturing plants in Missouri, Michigan, and Ohio after the UAW and the big three automakers failed to reach an agreement on a new contract. It's the first time in the union's history that its members have gone on strike against Ford, GM and Chrysler, making uh, Stellantis at the same time as for how long they're willing to strike. Here's what UAW President Sean Fain told NBC News moments after the union officially walked out.
3: As long as we have to, one day more than these companies want to hold out. It don't matter to us. We're going to be out here until we get our share of economic justice. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. That's up to the companies. They need to come to the table and get real about taking care
4: of their members that they call family.
2: Meanwhile, President Biden, who calls himself the most pro-union president in American history, now finds himself walking a fine line between supporting the labor movement while also trying to limit the impacts of the strike on the economy as he uh, stakes much of his re-election campaign on his economic record. Here's what he had to say earlier today.
5: Let's be clear. No
2: one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' right to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration, record corporate profits which they have should be shared by record contracts for the UAW.
5: And just as we're building an economy of the future, we need labor agreements for the future. It's my hope that the parties can return to the negotiation table
2: to forge a win-win agreement. In addition to the economic impacts, the strike could have broader implications for the president as he seeks a second term in the White House. For one, the UAW has yet to back Biden's 2024 re-election bid and... The walkouts will largely be centered around states like Michigan and Wisconsin, both of which were critical to Biden's victory in 2020. The strike also comes at a less than ideal moment for the White House politically. A new Fox News poll shows Biden lagging slightly behind the Republican frontrunner, former President Trump, in a head-to-head matchup, with 61 percent of registered voters saying Biden does not have the mental soundness to serve. The president is also facing the fallout of a criminal indictment of his son and an impeachment inquiry by House Republicans that seeks to tie him to his son's business dealings. So joining me now from the picket line outside Detroit is NBC's Jesse Kirch. Also with me, NBC White House correspondent Mike Memole. Jesse, the UAW is officially striking against the three automakers. So why did the negotiations break down?
4: Yes. So, Gabe, if you ask either side, the other side uh, was not negotiating on the same level. The UAW is accusing the big three automakers, Ford, GM and Jeep owner Stellantis, of dragging their feet uh, until the final days. We've heard from both the GM and Ford CEOs in the last 24 hours or so. And they've told us that it wasn't until last night when they received the first substantive counteroffer from UAW. So the finger-pointing is ongoing. Uh, We know that negotiations uh, in theory will continue, but for the moment, they are suspended from the UAW side. The union had announced a couple days ago that on the 15th they would not be negotiating because leadership would be striking with their workers. I talked about this with CEO of GM, Mary Barra, earlier today. Here's part of what she told me. Your understanding is UAW is not even going to negotiate with you today.
6: Yes, my understanding is no negotiations today. I will tell you our team is at the table
7: ready to continue and get this get do the problem solving we need to do to get people back to work. For every one of uh, every GM job, there's six other jobs that are associated with it, and that's why the ripple effect can happen so fast. It's not going to be good for the economy. It's not going to be good for anyone
4: bar there, Gabe, is is underscoring one of the other concerns that's out there around all this is a ripple effect well beyond uh, just those who are striking. Of course, there could be other auto workers impacted if layoffs happen down the line. That's something that uh, the Ford CEO yesterday was warning is a potential based off of who's striking. But then there are other pieces of the economy as well uh, that are of concern, too.
2: So, Jesse, the union's asking for 40% 40% pay increases in some cases. You know, so how far apart are the uni demands from where the companies are at right now?
4: Yeah, so yesterday, uh, or overnight, I should say, just after midnight, Sean Fain uh, told me that they have made counter-offers. He wouldn't get into specifics. I was asking him if they've put out any olive branches, because we have seen concessions specifically on pay from the big three automakers. He wouldn't get into specifics. I asked uh, earlier today the CEO of GM about what the pay offer uh, that is being made by UAW is right now, and she wouldn't get into that specific with me either. But we know publicly, based on what has been asked uh, of demand. by UAW, there's about a a halfway point still to go. The numbers from the the big three automakers are around 20 percent, somewhere in that range. And the UAW is asking for 40 percent, and it's 46 percent when compounded over four years. So there appears to be at least publicly a wide ravine. But of course, we don't know exactly what is going on behind the scenes.
2: And Mike, the president's remarks on the strike today were fairly measured, right? For someone who has, you know, followed the president, how exactly, you know, what is going on inside the white house House right now this must be so difficult for this pro-union president give me a sense for the fine line that he's trying to walk here
1: yeah gabe this is such an interesting political moment for the president i've spent a lot of time over a long period of time with president and vice president biden over the years and he of course styles himself as you say as the most pro-labor president in history when he was vice president he took the lead in championing the auto industry bailout. He was essentially the co-mayor of Detroit for a period of years as he was uh, helping to rebuild the city, frankly, and... and keep it financially solvent uh, in the wake of the Great Recession. But his heart, of course, is with union workers, that's some of his favorite political audiences, and you see him at every turn here publicly uh, making sure to stand for workers and their right to collectively bargain. But he's also uh, cognizant of the fact that one of the major issues in this negotiation uh, is uh, the shift to electric vehicles and the fact Mm -hmm. that auto workers are concerned that that is going to, over time, deplete their workforce. You also have a president who intends to and feels he has a strong case to run on the economy, but a long disruption here uh, could potentially put that in in jeopardy. So I think you're going to continue to see the president do as he did today stand with workers, try to uh, infre- uh, re- reiterate that he believes they have a right to seek better wages, that this is something that is good for the economy as a whole, but privately make sure that workers are acting in their own best interests here and that the leadership of the big three are also uh, coming to the table uh, with a fair mind in-, in place here to make sure that it's a good deal for both sides. And,
2: Mike, it also can't be ignored that we're heading into an election year where Michigan is a key swing <laughs> state. So the UAW is yet to endorse anyone is the president counting on that endorsement
1: well we saw so quickly after the president announced his reelection bid just a few months ago how many major labor unions came forward to endorse him quickly unprecedentedly quick the UAW a key outlier in that but what the White House and what the Biden campaign has been very quick to point to, especially today, is the fact that Sean Fain, who we're hearing quite a bit from, has been emphatic in the idea that f- the former president, Donald Trump, is not somebody who could win the support of auto workers based on his past comments about especially shifting some of those jobs into more labor unfriendly states in the South, especially but a, a non-endorsement could be just as uh, punishing to President Biden in his re-election bid as an, uh, as an endorsement of his opponent. And so you do get the sense here that Biden aides want to make sure that they don't do anything publicly that would be seen as potentially undercutting workers here as they try to uh, get a good deal for all sides here.
2: So is the White House worried leaning too far in either direction could you know, derail the campaign in the state?
1: Well, it's it's interesting to to talk to White House advisors in terms of what they're working on behind the scenes, and because most of those conversations uh, are are very uh, close to the vest. You did hear the president today dispatch those aides who have been uh, primarily managing this if issue. Over the course of the last few months, there's of course uh, a top economic advisor Gene Sperling, and then the acting Labor Secretary Julie Su going in person to michigan to try to work with both sides directly uh what i think has been a sideline role for some of these officials and the white house in general is going to be i think getting closer and closer to a hands-on role uh, as they try to avoid a prolonged dispute here
2: and back to jesse in michigan what's been the union reaction to the president's involvement do do they welcome his help
4: Yes, so I spoke with a woman who was on the picket line earlier and she told me, Gabe, that she is in President Joe Biden's corner. Uh, And I also talked to her about the president's comments in support of the UAW when he spoke earlier today. But we also got a statement a short time ago from the UAW president, Sean Fain, which I think is kind of surprising in the context uh, of the president's relationship and everything Mike and you were just talking about. I wanna read part of that for you right now. Uh, If you take a look at this, this statement came out a short time ago from Sean Fain. I believe we have a graphic, there we go. Uh, The statement says, in part, working people are not afraid. You know who's afraid? The corporate media is afraid. The White House is afraid. The companies are afraid. Today, we're rallying with our members. Tomorrow, we expect to be at the bargaining table. So he's calling out the president there. And I asked Sean Fain overnight about his conversation with the president. He said he didn't want to get into the politics. But then we see the statement today. And in just a little bit, he'll be rallying with Bernie Sanders.
2: Jesse Kirch in Michigan and Mike Bemley at the White House. Thank you so much for joining us. And joining me now is Michigan Democratic Senator Gary Peters. And. Senator, you were on the ground this morning in Michigan. What did you hear from the auto workers on strike?
3: Well, that's right. I spent uh, the morning uh, on the picket lines uh, with uh, the auto workers. Uh, and I'll tell you they were actually uh, quite enthusiastic. Uh, their spirits uh, were very high. Uh, They uh, believe that uh, they need to get a good contract, that they haven't been uh, getting fair wages, particularly after the significant sacrifices that the UAW members have made in the past to, to keep these companies alive, you know. Back in 2008 and nine, during the auto rescue, it was uh, UAW workers that really stepped up, uh, made significant sacrifices, went to a two wage uh, system, lower wages, understood that they were part of the solution to get through tough times and yet now these companies are doing extremely well in fact already this year uh, across the board over 20 billion dollars in profits you look at the chief executives and the uh, and the uh, all of the executives in the company are making uh, uh, great money and large uh, pay increases and that has not been happening for the workers. And so clearly the workers b- believe, and, and I support them and I'm standing with them on the picket line, uh, that they certainly deserve fair wages and good benefits. And they should be able to participate in the good times, just like they were willing to sacrifice when the times were rough. Uh, they certainly uh, helped make GM uh, and uh, Stellantis uh, survivors during a very difficult time. Now they believe they should
2: share in the rewards. And Senator, you mentioned 2008, 2009. I was actually a reporter, local reporter in Flint, Michigan at the time. I covered GM's bankruptcy, and I was there for what was a very difficult period in the auto industry, as you just mentioned. Put it in perspective for our viewers. How far have we come from that those dark days of uh, the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, and where the auto industry is now compared to what it was 15 years ago?
3: Well, no, I think that's a great point. Uh, And as you were there, you know, it was a very, very difficult time. I still remember uh, the the meeting uh, with then the CEO of Chrysler uh, at the time and saying that if uh, he didn't get some support uh, from uh, the federal government and with help from the unions, that they would be filing for uh, for Chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy. I mean, they would be uh, liquidating is what they would have to do. And so uh, it was a scary time for workers, for everybody. And and as was mentioned in your opening segment, if the auto industry gets hit, it, those aren't the only workers. There are so many other jobs associated. Every auto worker job is usually supports around six jobs throughout the economy. So it would have been absolutely uh, catastrophic for Michigan had those companies gone under. Uh, they haven't. They've rebuilt. They're, they've got great products. They're selling very profitable vehicles. As I mentioned, they have record profits right now. Uh, the uh, key, key executives have seen large increases uh, in their in their payoffs and in their pay. And it's time for workers to be able to share in that.
2: At the same time, Senator, a lot of Americans across this country might look at some of the demands right now, the 40% pay increase over the next couple of years. And I understand that that is due to what the union says is these huge payouts, these huge salary increases for CEOs. But is there a danger here in terms of the public perception? Is there a danger that the union could be overreaching here and that many Americans might see these demands as just too high?
3: Well, you know, right now, certainly, uh, these are what is out as uh, demands. You know, as it goes through the negotiation process, it's not likely to end up exactly where you start uh as you go through that process but you also have to look at these numbers in terms of the inflation the inflation rates that we have seen here recently and the fact that the, this is a, a new contract uh, the, uh picking up from a contract that was signed before we saw these high inflation rates but bottom line i think this this uh this strike is about more than just uh, the uaw and the auto workers it is about workers uh, across the country who uh, understand that the middle class uh, has been shrinking it is a struggle for folks Uh, And yet you see very large profits. You see stock buybacks. You see an awful lot of money in the economy, but not coming to everyday people. And I think it's a major reason why, if you look at public opinion polls right now of the broad public, and you ask them uh, how favorable do they view unions, uh, actually it's it's the it is equal to the highest amount back in 1963 we haven't seen these high favorability numbers for unions since 1963 which was a a very golden time for unions and if you think about that in 1963 the the average CEO made about 30 times more than the average worker uh today uh it's about 500 times more than the average worker and uh folks are saying this is not working right especially young people if you look at Younger folks, so that's why you're seeing uh, drives in Starbucks and other areas where people are looking to unionize, because people realize that they need to collectively come together in solidarity and stand up.
2: And Senator, you alluded to this in one of your answers, but what do you make of those warnings um, that of the effects that the strike could have on Michigan's or the nation's economy? Uh GM CEO Mari Barra, of course, who she has a vested interest in this, she's warning that inventory could become tightened. And Moody says that the strike could, quote, undermine Michigan's position in the economy. So with those stakes so high, do you think that President Biden should take a more active role in these negotiations?
3: Uh, well, there's there's no question uh, we don't want to have a long strike. You never want to strike, uh, so this is not something that anybody wishes on anybody. And, and the workers who are on strike, you know, I was as I was out there today, they were filling out their paperwork to get their strike pay of uh, five hundred dollars a week. Uh, this is going to be a sacrifice uh, for those members, so no one wants to see the strike go long. It, it does have uh, a, an impact, uh, and I think that put that puts pressure on both sides to come together and find an agreement that they can uh, that they can live with. But I think you also have to look at the long-term benefits of uh, this strike, and hopefully we'll have a successful conclusion uh, of it very quickly. But if you put more money into the pockets of workers, if you put more money into middle class Americans, they spend that money. It is actually incredible stimulus for the economy. I don't believe you can have a strong economy if you don't have a strong and vibrant middle class. And that's what this battle is about, is to make sure middle class families have the resources to live a life uh, with fair wages and good benefits and can strengthen the overall economy. That's really what's at stake here.
2: Senator Peters, thanks so much for joining Meet the Press Now. We appreciate your time, sir. Uh, let Thank me bring you very in a, another Michigan lawmaker, Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. And, uh, Congresswoman, what you make of the president's remarks today? We reported he spoke to both the union and industry leaders yesterday. So are you satisfied with the president's public response, given how often he touts his pro-labor credentials? So,
8: look, I've been probably more engaged than most people talking to everybody on both sides. It's uh, a lot of time in union halls. I am not somebody that believes that this president should intervene uh, in mm. this strike or where we are. Uh, this is something that's got to be resolved between the companies and the workers. Uh, I think it's very important that the president show the workers he's standing with them strong. They're looking for that signal. I know the difficult, White House feels that they're in a difficult place. I have been working with Gene Sperling all summer. I probably right now talk to him 10 times a day. They are closely monitoring what is going on. They are listening. I think we need to think in the public policy arena what it is that we can do to support this transition. You know, this is not a talking point moment. This is where the rubber is hitting the road about the future of this auto industry i'm not old but i'm seasoned i've watched a lot of contract negotiations and this without fail is the most important one i will probably witness in my lifetime
2: certainly congressman i know you've been around the auto industry a very long time but i understand you and i appreciate what you say that this needs to be negotiated between the workers and the car makers but given that president biden This is one of his main issues. Is there a danger for him appearing two hands off here? Well,
8: I think he does need to show people that he is engaged. It's monitoring. What kind of policies can he help uh, help do? I've said for a while, I've said to everybody, we got a problem with labor uh uh in that i'm in the union halls i am in a union hall every since during the pandemic i wasn't able to but uh, every weekend i am in a union hall i'm going to tell you in 215 216 i warned democrat donald trump could win michigan and everybody thought I was crazy now i know but the, i've talked to the president i mean anybody who knows me knows i talk to everybody to make sure that they understand what the issues are and you know part of the issues in this contract are 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 very clear cola Uh, My colleague, Senator Peters, talks about it, but people don't understand that union workers gave up COLA in 2008 and 2009, have not had a cost of living adjustment since those times, and now their real wages are almost 10 percent behind where they were in 2008 and 2009. We have to address the tier system, but not even in these contract negotiations. And probably what is the most important issue, but you can't talk about it because of labor law, is that transition to the battery from the internal combustion engine to the battery who's going to be how are you going to who's going to make those batteries how are they going to be paid where are they going to be built and we do have a role to play in that i i consistently and constantly tell my colleagues that as we go to evs we've got to address the foundation that's got to be there and in place and it's not either or it's both but the worker has to be have a just transition. We have to watch out for the worker in this transition
2: period. Certainly, Congress. i a critical inflection point in the history of the auto industry. But let's talk more about the president's campaign. We showed a poll earlier that more than 60 percent of Americans do not believe that President Biden is mentally sound enough to serve as president. That number includes a quarter of Democrats and nearly 70 percent of independents. So what do you make of those numbers?
8: So first of all, I'm going to tell you that I'm Everybody knows this at MSNBC and Chuck Todd knew it well. I don't believe in polls because you all keep giving me all these polls and told me I was crazy when I said Donald Trump was going to win Michigan. And I was right and you were wrong. And I'm in those halls and I know what people are saying. And it's a year out from this race. So this is just another poll that's an inflection of time that you all are going to use to make a lot of noise about I'm going to listen to what the voters are really thinking and what the choice is going to be and who it's going to be between. Now, President Biden has got to show people how engaged he is, what he's paying attention to, making sure he's fighting for those issues that working men and women across this country care about. He's going to do it during this auto strike. He's going to do it for the next year and ask me next October what I think and who's going to win, because I get out every weekend. I talk to real people. Polls don't talk to real people.
2: Congresswoman Dingell, we cover a lot of things on this program. We cover polls, we cover voices of voters, we cover politicians. We greatly appreciate your time here for speaking with us about a very important issue. Thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you. And up next, Kristen Welker, the new moderator of Meet the Press, is here after her exclusive and wide-ranging interview with the 2024 Republican frontrunner Donald Trump. What he told her about potentially pardoning himself and Russian President Vladimir Putin his comments on that next. And new troubling poll numbers for an incumbent president seeking re-election as the crisis and concerns pile up. Can the Biden campaign navigate the rocky road to 2024? That's ahead. You're watching Meet the Press Day.
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills
1: there's a big learning curve with welding virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact
0: primary season is here if you've got voting questions we've got voting answers visit mbcnews.com slash plan your vote you'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election visit mbcnews.com slash plan your vote today
2: Welcome back. Ahead of our first episode as the new moderator of Meet the Press. Kristen Welker sat down with former President Trump in a one-on-one exclusive interview inside his New Jersey golf club. The interview comes as Mr. Trump faces a historic moment, expanding his already dominant lead over the GOP field, with his sights firmly set on retaking the White House while facing enormous legal peril across four looming criminal trials. No topic was off-limits, from the prospect of jail time to big policy issues like his stance on abortion and his view of Russian leader Vladimir Putin, who made comments this week about Trump's so-called plan to end the war in Ukraine. Take a listen.
7: I want to ask you about something President Putin said about you this week. I don't know if you've seen it. This was very recent. President Putin said, quote, We surely hear that Mr. Trump says he will resolve all burning issues within several days, including the Ukrainian crisis. We cannot help but feel happy about it. What do you make of that? Do you welcome this? I like
5: that he said that because that means what I'm saying is right. I would get him into a room. I'd get Zelensky into a room. Then I'd bring them together, and I'd have a deal worked out. I would get a deal worked out. It would have been a lot easier before it started. Essentially, for four years, I kept them from doing anything because you know what i will tell you this i've never said this ukraine was the apple of his eye i said don't ever do it don't ever do it he would have never done it but again oil prices he wouldn't have done it because of me but oil prices the prices were so high that he had so much money so he had all this money to prosecute the war the one who drove up the prices was biden given that president
7: putin has bombed maternity wards, 20,000 kids kidnapped from Ukraine by Russia, mass
5: graves. Do you welcome his support, his all but endorsement? Look, I had a very good relationship with him, and yet nobody was tougher on Russia than me. I stopped Nord Stream 2. You never heard of Nord Stream 2. That was the pipeline until I got involved. I said, Nord Stream 2, people that were sophisticated, Military people and political people never heard of Nord Stream 2. I had it ended. The pipeline was dead. Biden came in and he approved it. There was nobody tougher than me with Russia, and yet I got along with Putin. Let me tell you, I got along with him really well. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. He's got 1,700 nuclear missiles, and so do we. But look, that's a good thing. Getting along is okay, but I got along through strength. And the war would have never happened the war would have never happened. Now what's happened, it's so bad. The oil price is so high, it's hard to get it stopped. The oil price is so high. When he goes above 50 and $60 a barrel, he makes a lot of money on the war. Now, it's a humanitarian thing. It's a lot of different reasons. But I will get that war stopped.
2: And you can catch much more of Kristen's interview this Sunday on Meet the Press. And joining me now on set, here it is, Kristen Welker. The new moderator of Meet the Press, thank you so much for being Here with us, and congratulations on that huge interview.
7: Gabe, thank you so much. It's great to be with you.
2: Well, it's good to have you here. And I want to talk to you a little bit more Mm -hmm. about that exchange regarding Vladimir Putin. Didn't the former president give any details on how he would come to this deal? He said he'd end the war very quickly. What exactly did he mean? And did he say how often he talked to Vladimir Putin when he was president? He
7: didn't, but you're absolutely right. That's the key question. How are you going to end a war in 24 hours? A lot of people hear that and say it's just not realistic. He wouldn't give specifics. But I practically asked him, Gabe, on the idea of if you were to end this war in 24 hours, isn't that effectively giving Putin a win? Mm-hmm. Because he would therefore be able to hold on to the territory that he's illegally occupied. The former president disputed that and said that wouldn't be a part of any deal. It's hard to see how it wouldn't be, but this is an ongoing challenge. And again, not giving any new details about the specifics of that 24-hour timeline, which by a lot of accounts doesn't seem yeah. realistic to many people. And of
2: course, as you know, Chris, the Ukrainians would you know, according to all the experts and according to the Ukrainians that I've spoken with, they wouldn't give up they wouldn't agree to any deal that gave up any of their territory. So he didn't get into specifics. And that's something the former president often does, right? You also spoke to him about these negotiations with the UAW and the Big three. He talked about a grand deal, but would never get into specifics.
7: That's so interesting. He said he would make a deal uh, between uh, UAW and the big auto manufacturers, and of course, the entire country watching this massive standoff look. He is a businessman. He wrote The Art of the Deal. So we know that this is a part of who he is as a politician as well. But you're absolutely right to point out that the devil's in the details. How does it actually get done? It was notable when he weighed in on the UAW standoff, obviously going on against the backdrop of a major Mm -hmm. uh, and critical battleground state, Michigan, which Mm -hmm. former President Trump won in 2016 but then lost to President Biden in 2020. By the way, the Biden campaign blasting former President Trump for what he said about UAW, effectively saying that he's the one who Mm -hmm. sent manufacturing jobs overseas and that manufacturing has increased.
2: And Kristen, in this interview, you also got him to weigh in on some of his legal obstacles on the record uh, for the first time. And he told you that he was given the option to pardon himself, right, at the end of his administration. Let's take a listen at some of what he told you.
7: Mr. President, if you were reelected, would you pardon yourself?
5: I could have pardoned myself. Do you know what? I was given an option to pardon myself. I could have pardoned myself when I left. People said, would you like to pardon yourself? I had a couple of attorneys that said, you can do it if you want. Uh, I had some people that said it would look bad if you do it because I think it would look terrible. Um, I said, here's the story. These people are thugs, horrible people, fascists, Marxists, sick people. They've been after me from the day I came down the escalator with Melania and I did a great job as president. People are acknowledged. Great economy, great jobs, great this, great that. Rebuilt the military, Space Force, everything. We, I could go on forever. Let me just tell you. I said the last thing I'd ever do is give myself a pardon. I could have given myself a pardon. Don't ask me about what I would do. I could have the last day. I could have had a pardon done that would have saved me all of these lawyers and all of this these fake charges, these Biden indictments. They're all Biden indictments, political. They indicted they want to arrest their political opponents. Only third world countries do that banana republic. So ready? I never said this to anybody. Uh, I was given the option. I could have done a pardon of myself. You know what I said? I have no interest in even thinking about it. I never even wanted to think about it. And I could have done it. And all of these questions you're asking me about the fake charges, you wouldn't be asking me because it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful thing for a president. I was told by some people that these are sick lunatics that I'm dealing with. Give yourself a pardon. Your life will be a lot easier. I said I would never give myself a pardon.
7: Even if you were
5: reelected in this moment? Well, I think it's very unlikely. What, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. You mean because I challenge an election, they want to put me in jail?
2: So interesting. You know, the television performer kind of teasing. I've Mm -hmm. never said this before. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, I want to ask you, look, you covered the Trump Mm -hmm. administration. Of course, you were the moderator of that critical debate in 2020. You've dealt with the former president so many times. What struck you about this interview in particular? What was his demeanor like? Did he seem a different way? His answers to his questions. What struck you most?
7: Look, I think he was incredibly defiant in this interview, particularly as you heard him say. I did ask him repeatedly about the legal challenges that he is facing. I asked him if he fears going to jail, and he said he doesn't. He said, I'm wired differently. Mm -hmm. That was a fascinating and revealing moment, but it is clear that this is obviously something that looms large over his campaign. He has a very significant lead in the GOP primary, but when you look at the general election matchup, it gets much closer, and he knows that's where these legal challenges, I think, come under closer scrutiny.
2: Kristen Welker, the new moderator of Thank Meet you, the again. Press. It's so see good to have you here in person, Thank and you. we'll be watching on Sunday great to see, to see, see more you. of that interview. Appreciate, Appreciate it. You. Thanks. Make sure to catch more of Kristen's exclusive interview with former President Trump this Sunday. Only on Meet the Press. Instead of come this hour, how an 80-year-old president is working to rally support for his re-election among the nation's youngest voters. You're watching Meet the Press Now. And welcome back. As we've noted, the headaches facing the president are piling up. Economic uncertainty and an auto workers' strike. A looming impeachment inquiry. Legal issues facing his son, Hunter Biden, questions about his age, all as the Biden re-election campaign braces for a brutal campaign season, no matter who they face in 2024. New numbers from Fox News have President Biden running neck and neck with all of his potential Republican rivals. As we showed you earlier in a national poll, President Biden trails the Republican frontrunner Donald Trump by two points. That's within the margin of error. But it is a notable decline from... Fox's August poll when Mr. Biden led Trump by three points. The other potential Republican nominees are also within the margin of error with the president, with Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Mike Pence narrowly leading Mr. Biden. The strongest hypothetical matchup for the president? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What it means for the White House and the Republican primary. The panel is next. And welcome back. With summer break officially over for most people and Congress back in session. Both parties are confronting serious issues heading into the fall. For Republicans, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who just initiated an impeachment inquiry of President Biden, has until the end of this month to rally his caucus to a spending agreement and avoid a government shutdown, all while navigating threats from that caucus to oust him from the speakership. Democrats, meanwhile, must contend with continued polling that show the president tied with former President Trump and most other GOP candidates while also facing a growing number of setbacks and distractions in Washington. Joining me now is the panel on set, Heidi Heitkamp, former Democratic senator from North Dakota and a CNBC contributor, Sarah Chamberlain, president and CEO of the Republican Main Street Partnership, and Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you all for joining me Thank to the Press you, Now. You. And Tia, I want to start with you. We're still a long way out from the 2024 election. Was it like 416 It'll days? Down
9: to the day. Yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> better than me.
2: Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it from, you know, some of the discussion we're already having. But, you know, the polls that we're hearing about, the new polls regarding uh, President Biden, does this square with what, you know, what you've been hearing? And is this where President Biden expected to be at this point against former President Trump?
9: I think President Biden would like to have higher approval numbers, higher polling numbers. Mm-hmm. But I think his his campaign would say there's a lot of time um, right now. Trump and the other Republicans are fighting for that nomination. It's not even general election season yet. I think Biden's campaign would also say national polls are not what is the true uh, barometer of how to win a presidential election. But it is troubling. The White House, the Biden campaign has tried a lot of things mm-hmm. to tout his agenda, tout what he's accomplished in his first two years of office. And it's not resonating to the point that it's turning things around.
2: And Sarah, I, I want to turn to you. You know, a lot of Republicans have been making the electability argument against Trump. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of talk that, oh, you know, another Republican would be better suited to take on President Biden. But looking at that poll, does this poll take the wind out of that argument? I know it's within the margin of error, but 48-46, it looks, according to this poll, that former President Trump is in decent shape, very good shape against Biden.
6: He certainly is in decent shape. And Republican Main Street Partnership did a poll that matches this Mm -hmm. poll. So he is certainly right there. People like President Trump. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I know Governor Sununu would, has been very public about wishing that maybe Trump would not be the nominee, but at this point, it looks like he will be. It so, doesn't even matter what is going on with the with the law,
2: and, and the so indictments. I want to turn to Heidi now. To win a campaign, you need to motivate voters, as <laughs> yeah, you know. That's right. Now, the poll also shows that 50% of all voters are dreading a Trump-Biden rematch, including 60% of Democrats and independents. So... The voters say they don't want a rematch, but it looks like they're going to get it, right?
0: Well, who knows what's going to happen between now and Election Day. But, you know, one of the things that the Republicans need to be very concerned about is that once the choice is just between uh, Biden and Trump, that Trump, there there will be people who will, you know, not necessarily favorable to the president, but who do not want Trump to be president again. And so I think that the the best bet that you have right now is that Trump being the opponent for Biden gives Biden a, a headwind, or it gives Trump a headwind that Biden doesn't have. But, you know, the one thing that I will say, and, and I think the administration has a little bit of an ostrich uh, uh, symptom here. Head in the sand, pay no attention, we've got a great story to tell. Well, you got to start telling the story, because first impressions yeah. And politics matter.
2: You mentioned you got to start telling the story. At what point do Democrats start panicking about twenty twenty four?
0: I don't know that anyone's panicked, but people want to see a
2: campaign, right? Well, that's what I'm asking. At what yeah. point, like you know, is if it continues along this route, will hey. you know? And panicking may be a strong yeah. word, but. At what point do Democrats really get yeah. concerned about the? About
0: I, I, I saw Debbie Dingell tell you that yeah. it's all good and don't trust polls, but politicians trust
1: polls. <laughs> politicians <laughs> read That's polls. Right.
0: And, the, and the bottom line is you've got to respond. And if you let that narrative continue, too old, not up to the job, you know, not, not mentally able, that will embed itself and be so much harder to move than it is right now. And so, you know, my advice would be get out there prove your point, run a campaign and do not do not play, you know, the Rose Garden strategy.
2: Right. Now, Tia, I want to turn to something that has been coming up a lot in the campaign that the Biden administration, and the White House really does not want to touch, but it has been coming up. The issue of age. What do you think that what role do you think that issue is going to play in the in the months to come?
9: Well, that's a big reason why Biden is lagging in the polls. And I think the White House would say they do talk about it. He makes self-deprecating jokes. Mm -hmm. He acknowledges his age. Um, But it's an issue. I think that Trump being not that much younger inoculates it a little bit. But the fact that President Biden, it's not just age. It's the fact that he visibly moves Mm -hmm. more slower. He talks and sometimes... Loses his train of thought more um, in ways that are public because he's the Mm -hmm. president and he's on the public stage. So it's something that they that they know they have to deal with. It's it's who he is. It's it's what Democrats have right now.
2: And to that point, I was at Hampton University yesterday at a very energetic event with the Vice President, but. She didn't really mention President Biden directly by name. This was meant to, you know, energize young voters. But I spoke with several of the students there. Let's take a listen to what someone they told me and we can talk about it on the other side. Do you think that President Biden, do you think his age is a concern?
9: Um, I think it is a concern because, you know, we don't want to be like, you know, voting for him and then he may not like, you know, actually be able to serve the full term.
2: Do you think that President Biden's age is Mm -hmm. a concern?
9: um i would say yes
2: biden or trump
9: biden Biden.
2: (laughs) do you think president biden is too old to run for re-election
6: yes i do i do i think
9: it's good that he has kamala harris because she's young and she fits in a lot of demographics so she might be able to pride a fresh mind on a lot of topics but president biden himself i feel like he should this should be his last
2: year in office so, like, they were blunter than I anticipated. Some of them saying, "Oh, he might not be able to make it to his, his uh, the end of his term." However, at the same time, when I asked them, "Biden versus Trump," they obviously, yeah, you know, they obviously said uh, Biden, and that that squares with a recent NBC News poll that we had. That despite you know concerns about age. Young voters, ages 18 to 34, they will go um, for uh, President uh, President Biden by a wide margin, 60 to 35, I believe it is. The question is, can those voters actually turn out? Are, are those voters, even though they support President Biden and Vice President Harris, are they going to get out to the polls?
0: Uh, one thing I would tell you, and it should not be underestimated, and that is choice. Women's reproductive mm-hmm. rights once again will be on this ballot. There is a clear differential between the Republican party and the Democratic party. We're going to see young people voting issues mm-hmm. like climate, voting issues like choice. And so, you know, let's, let's not put too fine of a point on it because this is a race between two individuals. But the issues for young people are on the Democratic side.
2: And absolutely. That is something that Vice President Harris really stressed in her remarks yesterday. Also today, she was in North Carolina talking about climate change, gun safety the reproductive rights that's a theme she's hitting over and over again but you know sarah i want to get your your take on this what you just heard you know from those young voters what do you make of that and you can republicans also turn out their young voters as well
6: well we don't have as many young voters let's just be honest that's right um but i i'm not sure those voters are going to turn out i have a daughter that's about that age she's uh, 17 now and she thinks Biden is too old he is older than her grandfather on both sides mm. so that's a little scary I'm not sure these kids are going to turn out they're gonna talk about it mm-hmm. but will they really go and vote the Democrats need them to vote though you Absolutely. know
2: it was very interesting another group that I also talked to they said that they looked they grew up on the Obamas and they viewed you know yeah. former President yeah. Obama as their their dad they had young children in the White House but they look at President Biden as their grandfather
9: right and <laughs> so- As Sarah said, he's older than a lot of the young people's grandfather. He has grandchildren that are Mm -hmm. older than those college students you spoke to.
2: Thank you, Tia, so much, Heidi and Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us here on Meet the Press Now. And coming up, much more. And as we go to break, a look at what Republican voters on the trail have been telling our NBC team of campaign embeds on the ground about President Biden's age and whether it's also an issue for Donald Trump. Stay with us.
0: I am not so much age as his
6: mental faculties. I feel like he's being pressured and propped up.
4: Do you think Trump is too old to be president?
6: Um, He's getting there, but I tell you what, he is sharp as a tack. There's nothing wrong with his mind.
3: Not at all. No. I'm you my sixty-two. You know. oh my Trump's age is, yeah, it's bigger problems than
6: his age. Well, I think everyone ages differently, oh, nice. and I think that Trump is probably blessed with that ability to, um, like a Mick Jagger, like he'll be young forever.
2: Welcome back. Today marks the first day of Hispanic Heritage Month, a celebration of the history and contribution of Hispanic Americans. To honor those contributions, Congress approved the funding for the National Museum of the American Latino in 2020. And while the museum itself is still 10 years away from opening its doors, a proposed exhibition about the Latino youth movement sparked outrage from some on the right, leading the exhibition about Latino political activism to be put on pause. And joining me now is Jorge Samanillo, the founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino. And Hardhead, thank you so much for joining me at the Press. Now, first, tell us a little bit about the significance of this museum and what it took to get here. Well, this museum was years in the making. It goes back over
10: 30 years. People, small group of people trying to get a Latino history presence on the National Mall in Washington, DC, to tell a story, to have representation. And 2020, the legislation was passed. And we, started, we hired a director, myself. We created a board of advisors
2: and trustees and now we're looking for a site to build a museum on. And you know, just to bring our viewers up to speed, so the museum is still a decade away, but this exhibit you're trying to drum up interest. But there has been some controversy over the past year, of course, as you will now Bring us up to speed, what, what has, in your view, what has been the main sticking point? And it's been put on pause right now, and the exhibit is shifting direction a little bit. Tell, tell us about that.
10: Well, we have a Molina Family Gallery Gallery at the National Museum of American History. And in there, we have an exhibition called Presente, which we opened last June, which is a foundational exhibit talking about Latino history in the United States. Um, And that exhibit has been open a little bit for a year now. It's an incubator space. We try out different themes and topics, see what Mm -hmm. resonates, uh, and see
2: what we'll explore further for the permanent museum. Uh, But some Republican lawmakers looked at it and said this isn't the history that, uh, that they want to present it. Yeah. They argue that in some cases it presented Latinos as victims. Do you agree with
10: that? We always appreciate the critique and, uh, and people's viewpoints. And it shows passion, right? People want to make sure their stories are being represented in the correct way. So we'll listen to all sides and, and take that critique in. But um, it's factual history. But when we're. We always take a deep look at what people are saying. And if we need to make any corrections or
2: expand on labels, we'll do that. But. The- you know, I'm I'm trying to understand. I was I was reading a, an, an article about this uh, about this exhibit. Now, is the focus shifting to uh, salsa and, and music? Is that something that's for for a broader audience that you're focusing on, no, rather the, than focusing on this history? Or just clarify that?
10: No, there might be two different exhibits you're talking about. Right. So we have a front, the first exhibit we opened last year, Princesa. Right. We're working, we're developing another exhibition on Latino youth movements mm-hmm. that recently uh, came out in an article. Uh, Last year, I decided to shift to a music exhibit, a broader appeal exhibit, and that's what you may be talking about. That one is an exhibition that I decided we need to do to increase our collections, build our collections, reach out to more communities across the United States, have a broader appeal as we raise money
2: and build towards the museum. What would you say, how difficult is it in the times we're living in right now to present a version of history that is not so politically charged? Did it surprise you with how much blowback and backlash this particular museum got over the last year?
10: It didn't surprise me. You know, I'm from South Florida, from Miami, and I I know the Cuban-American story there and how passionate people are about making sure that story is told correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew we have a very diverse community across the United States and this Latino community we're trying to really build an identity for. So I expected some of that. So in terms of the funding, what's next? It's funding is, you know, it's raise money. We need to raise over $500 million and then Congress through the appropriations matches that. So we have a long road ahead, but we're doing very well with fundraising. Hopefully we'll secure a site this year and then eventually start the design competition, architecture, and we'll start seeing the ground, uh, the museum
2: coming out of the ground. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jorge, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Um, and, you know, as we start Hispanic Heritage Month, thank you so much. Thank for, you for joining us here and meet the press now. And we're back Monday with more Meet the Press Now. And if it's Sunday, of course, it is Meet the Press on your local NBC News station with the debut of Kristen Welker as moderator. She'll, of course, have much more of her exclusive interview with former President Donald Trump. NBC News Now coverage continues in just a few moments with Hallie Jackson right now. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now.